All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for another day to be grateful for, for another time to fellowship together as saints saved by grace. We thank you, Father, for making this day unlike any other, as yet another precious opportunity to spread your gospel not just as a church family, but as individuals, equipped for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Father, thank you for making these things clear to us. We pray that our hearts always remain open and pure, and that those we come into contact with see your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in us somehow and that they might see His love gathered up in us and shown through us as lights to the world. We ask that You bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear Your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message, obviously part 80, of this fantastic series, this fundamental series. Remember, I reloaded everything, which is, I've never heard of anybody doing that, I'm not special, but sort of, in colloquial terms, unheard of to reload an entire ministry based on a single series and getting something as fundamental to our faith even as the gospel right and full, so that we can start anew and be reassured the right way uh, with the right Scripture behind us. So part 80 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification. Uh, I want to share with you something uh, that the Spirit's been talking about for a while now, uh, and it has to do with reading your own Bibles. Uh, I've said this a million times already that I only have you now for three and a half hours, really. I mean, three hours a week, um, which isn't very much, which demands that you each go home on your own time and read the good book. Really read it. Don't just make it a works program. Read it. Understand it. Um, Compare what you already know. Uh, Just remember that Our truest mentor and teacher, God the Holy Spirit, is with you while you're doing that thing. So don't be afraid to do it. Uh, And from personal experience, I can tell you, you don't always get it right the first time through. You get a little confused. It's not that it's confusing. Things are very simple. uh, And the way that um, it goes is the way that the Spirit's been teaching us. The more you understand about Scripture, the simpler it gets. It's almost like you have more arrows pointing to the same thing, where you might have had one or two in the beginning, and you kind of like, you know, so now you have a bunch of arrows pointing to the gospel, to the good news about Jesus Christ. So with that said, I want to encourage you once again to read your own Bibles, but I want to give you some insight from David L. Cooper. Uh, The Golden Rule of Interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, 
seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths. Axiomatic, axiom, it just means absolute theology stated elsewhere. Indicate clearly otherwise. In other words, when you're reading your Bible, just read it. And if it says this, then take it as on faith. That that's what, that's what the Holy Spirit inspired it to say. We're not to get into all this, these mental gymnastics for the sake of overcomplicating things, for the sake of maybe appeasing our flesh even. So again, the golden rule of interpretation, I have to agree with Mr. Cooper here. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicate clearly otherwise. Well, that takes a lot of stress off of you going and reading your own Bibles. It means you can read it. Remember, you have been qualified by God to do that very thing, as we've learned. With that fresh in our minds, let's read one of the most impregnated theological passages in the New Testament. Go to John 1.1. John 1.1. The things that John states here are just mind-blowing. Magnificent, wonderful, uh, axiomatic. To put that word, give that word a little bit more meaning. John 1.1, and just read it. If it says this, this is what God intended it to say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Any questions? No. Should we be trying to do mental gymnastics here? No. That's theology. You don't understand everything about that statement, nor do I. How could we? But that is theology. And whether you like it or not, or whether the flesh can manage to put its grisly arms around it, is not the point. The point is, that's theology. That's the very mind of Christ, the heart of God, who is the author of theology, who is the very essence, the reason why theology even exists. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I got goosebumps. That passage to me is... uh, I don't know whether I should laugh, cry, what? All I know is that it's overwhelming. And it's theology. And that's often how you can identify theology because theology proper is overwhelming. When it comes to studying the Word of God, this may be one of the most critical statements of theology in the Bible up here on the board. And the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The very expression of God's thoughts became manifest in a human being. The profundity of this cannot ever be overstated. For how does one fully comprehend the supernatural becoming natural, or the God of the universe humbling Himself, or the love that motivated the cross? How? How does that work? I have no, a look at the distance between my mind and God's is infinite. And same goes for you. But theology says, and the Word became flesh. God became a man. That's why we call Jesus the God-man. So, right out of the gate, we readers of the Bible must accept that there are things that we simply cannot fully comprehend. Though these things are fundamental to our faith. Now that's the key. There are things we cannot fully comprehend, yet those same things are fundamental to our faith. And think of Hebrews 11.1, right? Conviction of things not seen. That's faith. This is theology at its best, my friends. That's theology at its best. We can't fully understand the boundaries of it because God is infinite, but yet it's fundamental to our very faith. In other words, the theology in John 1, while it is absolutely true in every way, cannot be fully contained by a finite mind. Since God is infinite, His theology is also. And the flesh hates this. Not dislikes, vehemently, repulsively hates theology. Why? Can't control it. Can't control it. Can't put it in a box. So the flesh hates theology. The best we can ever hope for is to grasp a portion of it while having faith that there's more than we'll ever experience with it. With God, that is. In other words, we have to take by faith the statements of theology in the Bible and then at the end of life, 
we'll never have had experience with every aspect of that theology that we've clung to in our very faith. We have to accept that. Why the flesh hates theology. The existence of theology is antagonistic to the flesh. Now listen, not just because of the content of it. We know that the flesh hates the content of it. But also because of its infinite structure. The flesh desires to control its surroundings, facilitating dominance over it. Think of Teshuka. You can't dominate something you can't put your arms around, you can't control, you can't put a leash on. The flesh wants to put a leash on God. But theology precludes that very thing from happening. So the flesh hates it. So the flesh desires to control its surroundings, facilitating dominance over it. However, the Word is unbounded, which precludes the flesh from achieving its end goal. What the Spirit's saying here is that as you go off and read your own Bibles, your own flesh is going to try to hijack your perception of clearly stated theology. Why? Because the flesh hates theology. And you have a flesh, every one of you. So as you're off reading your own Bibles, the flesh is going to try to hijack your perception of clearly stated theology. Like anything biblical, reading your own Bible must be done in the right way. It's good that you're reading it. But it's got to be done in the right way. That's not to say that you must be, let's say, sitting at a table by candlelight, or you must be you know, somewhere secluded, or that you must be this or that. That's not the point. So we spent 45 minutes of Thursday's lesson on applying a certain old principle to the idea of reading your own Bibles. And this is just general wisdom. The right thing must be done in a right way. It's good to read the Bible, but you've got to do it with the flesh out of the way. You've got to do it with the right approach. You can't approach the Bible to try to prove your own experience. You have to approach the Bible when you read theology, accept it, even though it might seem well or far outside of your own experience in life. It may be a point of doctrine that you've never experienced. It may seem completely foreign to you. So, so when you read your own Bibles, you must read it the right way. So, to apply this to the concept of reading one's Bible, a right thing must be done in a right way, the Spirit highlighted a few things that are of particular importance. And before we review the lesson, our last lesson on that topic, let me encourage you to read a very small book that I read years ago that I found a wonderful help in my own studies. I found it, in a sense, not to overstate it, but a bit of a transformation. And I think I've recommended this to you in the past, but if you can get your hands on it, I sent... Uh, I sent Monica a link from Amazon.com. For 99 cents, you can get it on your Kindle. Now, I think it's out of print, so to find, believe it or not, it's, it's this big, and it's that skinny, and I just saw it on Amazon for 40 bucks. 
This is how disgusting the world is. This is what gets me to these guys that are, and some of them are good guys. I don't know what they're thinking. Making money off of something this wonderful. It's disgusting. How do you charge $40 on a book titled that? How to read, how to master your English Bible. The guy's been long dead as far as I know. He's not getting it. Somebody's getting it. It's disgusting. But I digress. Anyways, if you can get your hands on a copy of How to Master the English Bible by James N. Gray, go get it. Get it. Get it on Kindle. I sent a link to Monica. If you can't find it on Amazon yourself, ask her. She'll send you the link. I already did the search. Pre-populated the search for you. It's all in the link. Grab it, download it, read it on your Kindle. It's wonderfully simple, and it's only about 80 pages long in large print. And it may just, I was thinking about this, it may be a welcome reprieve from the Covert Arrogance book (laughs) that most of you are still reading, given that one's technical nature. So it might be a little bit of a reprieve. Here's what we considered on Thursday up here on the board. While you read your Bibles, just sharing my soft underbelly here as a shepherd, my great comfort is in knowing that the Holy Spirit, assuming you keep on reading, will ultimately iron things out in your souls. You must remain humble, though, and resist the flesh's temptation to pervert theology when you see it. The flesh hates theology. So it's going to be right there. Oh, that's, 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 not, that's not what it says. I know what it says, but that's not what it really says. You must remain humble and resist the flesh's temptation to pervert theology when you see it. So, here's a time-proven strategy that will promote this, and you'll see much of what I'm teaching you now in the book by James Gray titled How to Master the English Bible. Concentrate. This is what we talked about on Thursday evening. The difference between theology and application, I think that people get a little bit muddied in this area. And it's natural. I think, you know, most people get there, whether they admit it or not, most people live by doctrines that they've learned through experience. How do you think the rest of the world learns about, say, morality? Or learns what they consider right and wrong? It's not because they're reading their Bibles, is it? No, so God's not giving them the doctrines to live by. They're learning through experience. But don't do that because you have the Bible to iron things out for you. So don't muddy these things. Theology lays out principles. And those principles, as uh, the Spirit mentioned earlier, are beyond the boundaries of your finite mind even. But nonetheless, by faith, we have to remain within the confines, if you would, or within the structure of theology, because that's God. So theology lays out principles. Life is where those principles are applied. The Bible gives us insight into both. I mean, we have plainly stated theology, like we saw in John 1, let's say. And then we have a lot of examples, whether it's Moses or David or Paul. We have a lot of the Corinthians as a general church. We have a lot of examples of where people touch theology. People interact with God Himself a certain way. And we see the interchange or the exchange of maybe godliness or maybe ungodliness. 
but the theology never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and always. So, theology lays out principles. Life is where those principles are applied. The Bible gives us insight into both. The common error, though, is to make theology out of the human experience, even recorded in Scripture. People will look at Paul. I was thinking about this when I was preparing yesterday. Um, there was a, there's an argument that's been going on in a very small group of individuals that um, you know water baptism isn't something that is uh, something you would do in the church age, and they they go to Paul and they say, "See, Paul never." baptized but a couple of people. And they use that experience to quote-unquote substantiate an errant theology that says that you don't need to baptize anyone with water when they're saved. There needs to be no public affirmation of it. Well, that's garbage. That's garbage. But that's a situation where someone used Paul himself as an example, to twist theology. When Jesus Christ said in the Great Commission, go out and baptize. But Paul really never did. He only did a couple. Well, first of all, he did a couple, so what the heck does that mean? Oh, well, that was just a... Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Maybe Paul didn't spend all his time baptizing. Maybe he was so busy being the steward of grace... There's a responsibility for you. He didn't spend his time in a pool or in a river. He said, I'm going to leave that up to my disciples. You see, people do that thing. And it's a horrible, horrible thing to see. So the the common error is to make theology out of human experiences recorded in Scripture. For example, Job's wife. Did you know that all women are wenches? Miserable wenches? Well, Job's wife was. She had the very best. He was blameless and upright. How could you be such a witch and be married to such a great man? Because that's women. They're all witches. Oh, oh, all the women are... My tie's going to go up in flames. You know I'm just kidding, ladies, so settle down. Tashuka, Tashuka. They're all the pitchforks out there. I'm like getting my truck. I got to get out of here. Think you're funny, huh, bald guy? We can't do that, so stop it. Yes, they are touch points, but there's always a theology behind the experience. And same goes with any of you. But do not twist it and turn it around. Same thing with Corinthians, etc., etc. In other words, while theology represents the very mind of Christ, the human experience only touches a finite number of facets of it in time. While... Theology represents the very mind of Christ. The human experience only touches a finite number of facets of it in time. There's a logical pattern to human reason and the flesh's method of trying to put broad things in a box for the sake of control. So let me give you an analogy. I'm going to help drive this all home. I hope you get what the Spirit's saying. Up here on the board. For example, here's an analogy. The fruit of the flesh. Why has mankind struggled with prejudice throughout history when God is clearly impartial? And I'm talking about Christians even. 
Why has mankind struggled with prejudice throughout history when God Himself is impartial? And I'm talking about Christians even, so turn the finger towards yourself. Romans 2.11, 1 Timothy 5.21. Go to Romans 2.11 just to prove this point. And again, we're in the midst of an analogy. I'm just building an analogy slash example to drive this point home that the Spirit's been getting at. That there's a logical pattern to human rationalism or reason and the flesh's method of trying to to put broad things in a box for the sake of control. So why has man struggled with prejudice throughout human history? when God is clearly impartial. Romans 2.11 says, For there is no partiality with God. Do you know what that's called? It starts with a T. The next word's an H. The next word's an E. Then it goes O. You're going to make me spell it because I might screw up. Thank you. Theology. That's theology. There is no partiality with God. Well, my experience is that so-and-so gets treated this way. God seems to be just bashing this one, and God's not bashing this one. That's total partiality. So I guess there's, you know, there's, let me just play a little games with this thing. Let me go find some other scripture. See, Paul saw this and uh, you know, Saul did this. and blah, blah, blah. All right. No. Look it. What's that say? For there is no partiality with God. That's theology. Whether you can, you can fully understand that or not is not the issue. You don't know what God's doing when He's smashing this one and elevating this one. You don't know what He's doing. He knows everything. You don't. So shut up. Stop trying to take your piddly little experience, right? And making it, and just trying to describe God with it. That's theology, for there is no partiality with God. Go to 1 Timothy 5.21, where we find the encouragement or the command. And what are commands? Nothing more than expression of God's will for man. So we have the theology, there is no partiality with God. 1 Timothy 5.21 Then we get a command to guess what? Be like Him. 1 Timothy 5.21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. Principles, theology in view to maintain theology even without bias, do nothing in a spirit of what? Partiality. So now you have the command. And Paul's writing to Timothy these things. By the way, I'm not talking about racial prejudices either. Although that's a subset of a larger prejudice issue. I'm speaking in general terms here. So broaden your thinking. Again, the point on the board. Why has man struggled with prejudice throughout history when God is clearly impartial? We just read that in Scripture. And I'm not just talking about racial. That seems to be the one everybody gets at. But there's lots of prejudices out there, folks. The answer is simple up here on the board. The flesh prefers to use human experience as the basis of its doctrines. For example, consider something that you are really afraid of. And don't say, I'm just so tough that I'm not afraid of anything. Because then you're a liar. 
Consider something that you are really afraid of. Seriously, it could be tangible, it could be intangible. It could be, I don't know, you have some weird fear of elephants because you got chased at a zoo one time. It could, be a f- it could be a fear of relationships because you've been burned so many times. I don't know. But think of something that you really are afraid of. Chances are you have had some personal exposure, either directly or indirectly. Thank the TV and television and radio for the indirect stuff. With that thing. You got it? Everybody thinking of something? Scott's like, I'm not afraid of anything. I'll just go. Just go. I'm good. He's like... For example, let me give you an example just to drive this point home. How many of you, go ahead, raise your hand, how many of you have lived in Camden, New Jersey? Why is, it real, why is that funny? I don't know. But it's funny. But it's not if you live there. That's a picture of Camden, New Jersey. Okay? That's a picture of Camden, New Jersey. And yes, people live in those houses. So since I don't see any hands, this means that none of you have any personal experience with this area of our country. Fair? All right. None of you have any personal experience with this area of our country. Okay. Suppose I left my favorite Bible inside of one of the buildings you see in that picture, and the only time you're going to be able to pick it up for me is after midnight. But you love me, so you're going to go pick it up, right? I love you, but not that much, is what most of you are saying. Do you have a problem with that? Are you afraid? Why? You just said you've never lived there. Most of you have probably never been there. So what's your problem? Seriously, what's your problem? What are you afraid of? Are you pansy? Anthony's like... You know what I'm saying, though, right? The point is simple. And let's apply it to what the Spirit's been getting at. Boxing the supernatural out. Human beings learn prejudice through their experiences. Human beings learn prejudice through their experiences. While it makes rational sense to do so, it boxes out God's supernatural promises, for example. Judges 7.7, Mark 10.27, Philippians 4.13. This is how the flesh boxes the supernatural out. Human beings learn prejudice through their experiences... While it makes rational sense to do so, it often boxes out God's supernatural promises. Go to Judges 7.7. Old Testament, Judges 7.7. This is what your flesh will do for you. Even though it's unholy, and it's going to cause angst and anxiety and worries and doubt. I mean, if God says something is theologically true, then shouldn't we just go, oh, great. But we don't. Why? Because we have all kinds of experiences, all kinds of learned rationale of why it can't be true. 
How about Judges 7, 7? Pretend you're Gideon. So now this is the Lord speaking to Gideon. Okay, It's not like somebody else. It's the Lord speaking to Gideon. He says, I will deliver you with 300 men, with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his own home. Does anybody know, have an estimate of how many Midianites that Gideon's 300 were up against? 135,000. Okay. Okay. Let's just put this in perspective, right? If we saw, I don't know, 75,000 atheists outside this building, and they said, we're going to attack you, and we're going to maul all of you, right? And you're going, but there's, there's not many of us in here. And the Lord God came down right now and said, I'll deliver you. What's your flesh going to be saying? He's lying. <laughs> it would be like us standing. I'm not sure. I think what's uh, Gillette Stadium holds about 70 or 80. Yeah. So it would be packed Gillette Stadium, stand in the middle. That's all of them. And we're, this group right here is in the middle of the field. And they're all going to con- come on us like this. And God says, don't worry about it. What are you going to say? I'm kind of worried. Because they look angry. Some of them have guns and clubs and it's, it's torches and everything else, right? So Gideon's 300 were up against 135,000 Midianites. What might God, uh, Gideon's rational flesh, based on military records back then even, have to say about his odds? What would you be saying to yourself if you were Gideon? Yet, Gideon was speaking directly to the Lord. And theology says, God never lies. So there's God saying, I will deliver you. Theology says, God never lies. That's why you can't take this and say, oh, anytime I'm with God, I can just take 300 people and and crush 135,000. No, that's bad theology. That's taking an experience from the Bible and making it a theology. But when the Lord says, I will deliver you, and I never lie, theology proper, whether you get it or not is not the issue, whether you're afraid or your flesh is flipping out, or you're like, oh my God, I'm going to be killed, is not the issue. The issue is theology. And theology said God never lied. And if you're talking to God and he says this thing's going to happen, it's going to happen. But the last time I went up against 135,000 people with 50,000, I got my butt handed to me. So? But the last time I went up with 100,000, I got my butt. So? So, 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 so. I said I'm going to deliver you. I said this is the way it's going to be. Pure faith says, okay, cool. All right. But that's not the way the flesh likes it. See, the flesh says, "Uh uh-uh. That's impossible. Really? Impossible? Mark 10, 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, quote, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
That's theology. So your human experience has nothing to do with theology. Now, with that said, we must accept on faith what the Lord God shares with us in the Bible. For example, we studied out a uh, verse. Go to uh, 1 John 3, 6. We looked at this on Thursday. For the sake of its relation to the Gospel proper, and then sanctification proper. But it is a dogmatic statement of theology in the Bible. But people struggle with this. They say, how could this possibly be? But everything's possible with God, and God doesn't lie. And if God says He's going to sanctify you, then He's going to sanctify you. It doesn't matter what your human experience tells you. It's irrelevant. If God says at the end of your life, everybody who's about to be raptured is going to grow a set of chicken wings, then guess what? You're going to grow a set of chicken wings somewhere, I don't know, maybe God has a sense of humor, you choose. If that's what, we would have to accept that. We'd say, why? He'd say, shut up, I'm telling you, I'm going to do it. If I can deliver Gideon with 300 against 135,000, then I can put chicken wings on you. If I can save you, if I can become a man, die on a cross and save you, then I can certainly put chicken wings on you. If I can take your disgusting flesh and trade it out with a resurrection body for all of eternity, then I certainly can put chicken wings on you. I don't believe it. Well, fine. Nobody's ever successfully transplanted chicken wings on the back of a human being. So? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, I'm just trying to be ridiculous on purpose. Because the stuff that he asks us to receive on faith is ridiculous, quote-unquote, by human standards. That's why unbelievers look at us like, what is wrong with you? To them, the cross is a stumbling block. To them, Jesus Christ is foolishness. but God makes fools of the wise. 1 John 3, 6. Now here's a statement that some struggle with. It's just the way it is. But it's the flesh. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So John is making a theological statement here. Up here on the board, I gave you three other individuals, uh, pretty well-known individuals. Uh, C.I. Schofield. Uh, I believe he had two... Two out of the first and the last guy actually have Bibles, study Bibles after them. McGee did it through the Bible. But anyway, C.I. Schofield, uh, John is stressing the fact that a Christian cannot keep on practicing sin because he is born of God. McGee says, if you can be happy in sin, my friend, then you are not God's child because God's children have the nature of their father. MacArthur says, if no check against habitual sin exists in someone who professes to be a Christian, John's pronouncement is absolutely clear. Salvation never took place. That's theology. What do you, what's the problem? The theology here is simple. When we choose to accept it on faith, for the flesh is going to say, that's impossible. That's what the flesh will say. But Scripture on faith says, okay, okay. And God, knowing man, actually gave us Scripture to counter that tendency in man. That's why that Scripture's there. Because He knows man's tendency. See how smart God is? We just read a pair of verses that stated all things are possible with God. 
So here's the theology from 1 John 3, 6. For example, believers abide. No believer's lifestyle is characterized by sin. Anyone who does not live that way is not a believer. That's the theology. That's it. Believers abide. No believer's lifestyle is characterized by sin. Now, we're not talking about little times like the prodigal son, that kind of a thing, where you go away, but then you come back, that kind of a thing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an entire lifestyle. Someone who doesn't have his makata would say, a check, some kind of a check against sin. What do you mean? You're okay with, you're, you're totally okay with this? You have nothing in your soul or in your being that actually has a problem with this? And yet you're professing, you're a professing Christian? But the Bible says that you have the very nature of God. You've been given a new creature that has nothing, wants nothing to do with sin. Hmm. So you have to ask yourself, when you read dogmatic statements of theology like that in Scripture, you have to ask, why would anyone have a problem with John's theology here? Why? Only the flesh will have a problem with it, for it makes perfect sense to the new creature. And everybody that's a believer has, guess what? A new creature. New creature's like, cool, that's awesome. Makes sense to me. The flesh is, uh-uh, impossible. Doesn't make sense. I know this person, I know that person. Let me gather up a few people in the Bible that were doing knucklehead things over here. And this will prove the theology is wrong or not correct. But that's what the flesh does to try to, what, back-end theology? To control it? Consider it from a different angle now. Distinctions. While the new creature walks away edified, in peace, loving every moment of learning God's Word by grace through faith, the flesh walks away frustrated because of its learned prejudices because of its learned prejudices. The flesh is inherently uncomfortable with supernatural theology. Again, while the new creature walks away edified in peace, loving every moment of learning God's Word by grace through faith, the flesh walks away frustrated because of its learned prejudices. The flesh is inherently uncomfortable with supernatural theology. Again, our scriptural example is 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. I shared a quote from William MacDonald on this just to help out. It's a perfect example of when scripture doesn't always give us the full color. It just says this is true. It says this is true. The question naturally arises then when you read something like 1 John 3, 6. Well, then when does son become habitual? I mean, the original, I've taken you the present active, that's the habitual, the lifestyle, right? Sins. So when is it habitual then? When do I actually say, okay, well, it's a habit, and maybe I should be checking these, these things. How often does a person have to commit it for it to become characteristic behavior? John does not answer this. Okay. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that a human being, John, even being an apostle, does not try to exhaustively answer this? Why do you think that is? Because it would have been impossible for him. It would have been impossible for him to answer that question. 
But you see, the flesh is, but I want him to answer it. And because he didn't answer it, theology is different. Wrong. That's your flesh trying to control something that's not there. So John just doesn't answer it. Why couldn't he? Why wouldn't he answer that thing? Because everybody in here, everybody in all of human history that has come up against this theology has a different life experience. Has a different relationship even with God in heaven whose spirit is meant to educate and to teach and convict you of these things. So in other words, if you truly are saved, as the Bible says, the Spirit Himself will let you know. The Spirit Himself will let you know. He'll tell you, yeah, that little, you know that little thorn in your side right now? You know, even though you're off doing this thing, you know you're not supposed to be doing. That little thorn is me. You're mine now. You're my son. You're my daughter. I don't want you doing that thing. I know you're doing it. I know you're being a knucklehead, and I know you've been doing it. I know you've been living in this little ridiculous little sidebar, and just because no one else can see it in your life doesn't mean it's not real. I know what you're doing. And by the way, when you're being haunted about that thing, it's me that's haunting you. And unbeliever doesn't have that problem. And that's what the, like the three theologians were saying. The, the unbeliever doesn't have that problem. An unbeliever is void of that, let's call it a voice for lack of a better term, is void of that thing. So John doesn't answer it. I'm glad he didn't take a stab. Well, the Spirit wouldn't help him, but what if he said, oh, I'm just going to write it anyways. If he took a stab at it, what would happen is it would give your flesh the ability to put God in a box now and say, okay, these are the two instances, and, you know, over here, there's a bazillion other instances. Therefore, the theology is these two instances, and that's it. But he doesn't. And he does it, did that on purpose, obviously. So John doesn't answer this. Rather, he puts each believer on guard and leaves the burden of proof on the Christian himself. The baseline principle here, and again, this is Echoes of Theology 101, When it comes to theology, you must accept the openness of it at face value. If something is stated clearly, then you must accept it on faith, regardless of whether it is something you can personally relate to. That is not the issue. I gave you a few examples on Thursday to help drive these things home, or this thought home. I used a red anthill analogy then. But let me give you another analogy to help if that didn't finish the job. However, this time I'm going to flip the example. In those, in those analogies, I gave you the theology, and then I gave you a practicality, and then I asked you a question. Well, this time I'm going to flip it. I'm going to give you a practical experience first, and then ask some questions about the theology, or at least this one example. So here's the analogy. John and everyone he knows who's ever lived in Camden, New Jersey, has a below-average income. So John lives in Camden, and everyone he's ever known who lives in Camden, New Jersey, has a below-average income. Now, the possible quote-unquote theology, can we say dogmatically that everyone who lives in Camden, New Jersey, has a below-average income? 
No. But, but, but. No. But, but, but. No. We cannot. As difficult as it is for our flesh to imagine someone with the means to live somewhere else less dangerous, let's say, quote-unquote, we cannot make a theology because of our experience. Now, if the Bible happened to make a statement that God... Now listen, if the Bible happened to make a statement that God ordained all families living in Camden would be poor, then we could cling to that as our theology. If God said everyone that's ever going to live in Camden, New Jersey is going to be poor, then we could make that our theology. But we don't get to make theology out of experience. So since God hasn't made that statement, we must accept that there could be people living there that have average or even above average income. In fact, a millionaire could live there if they so desired. For example, maybe a single mother works three jobs and wants her five children to attend a private school. And so she chooses to live in Camden, where rent is low, so that she can do that for her kids. Yet, on paper, she makes average money. Since we're on the topic of seemingly impossible things that are well within the boundaries of theology proper, let me just share something with you on the topic, on that topic, uh, while the flesh cries, you know, that's impossible. But Scripture says, with God, all things are possible. There's this antagonism here, isn't there? Think about this. And some of you have read this list before. If God can use the following people, He can certainly use you and me. Some of you still struggle with you know, your purpose in life. And God, the Holy Spirit, has been doing such a magnificent job through the pulpit of trying to set you free from that bondage. And this should encourage you. And remember, the flesh is going, that's impossible. But Scripture says, with God, all things are possible. So if He can do these things with the following people from the Bible, then He can certainly do what He wants with you. And if that means growing chicken wings, you're going to grow chicken wings. I don't know. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Figures, right? Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young. David was an adulterer, not to mention a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. I know that's one, huh? I'm hoping that's not your thing. <laughs> really be like hey dad you know could have delivered him from something else just saying Jonah ran from God Naomi was a widow Job went bankrupt 
John the Baptist ate bugs. Andrew lived in the shadow of his big brother. Peter denied Christ. All the disciples fell asleep while praying and ran away when Jesus really needed them. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Zacchaeus was too small. Timothy had an ulcer. Paul was a Christian killer. And oh, Lazarus was dead. (laughs) Right? I mean, come on. If he can do things with these people, then he can do something with you. What's the point of all this? I hope you're getting it. Theology smashes any notion of human rationalism. It's why I always say to you, when you're arguing, don't, look, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't, look, there's only there's a certain level where you can go with an unbeliever because an unbeliever just wants to argue human rationalism. But you're supposed to be abiding in theology, which means that you're, over he- you're up here and they're down here. Give them the gospel and that's it. Arguing ad nauseum with the unbeliever is a waste of your time. Theology smashes any notion of human rationalism. We cannot read the personal records of individuals in the Bible and back into our theology, let's say. That's, that list is a good example. We must seek to understand that which already exists as theology, that is, the mind of Christ. Again, theology smashes any notion of human rationalism. We cannot read the personal records of individuals in the Bible and back into our theology. We must seek to understand that which already exists as theology, that is, the mind of Christ. And check our fleshes at the door and our personal experiences and our prejudices. Oh, but I've been... Oh, but... No, shh. Check your flesh and your personal experiences like a coat at the door. We just put the finishing touches on 1 John 3, 6 example, so let me just put that on there. Here was our conclusion from Thursday. In theology, man has every right to say that a person who is saved will bear good fruit. In practice, man never has the right to judge someone else's salvation status. Amen. She's like, yeah. Which kid is it? Oh, Sean. <laughs> All right. He's getting, he's getting, uh, is he doing this now? It's like, yeah. All night long. Praise Jesus. So in theology, man has every right, because that's what the Bible says. Man has every right to say that. But in practice, man never has the right to say You're not saved or you're saved, either way. As an additional point of wisdom, keeping it simpler, there's enough theology proper to occupy us for the rest of our lives. We do not need to add complexity by manufacturing doctrines as a result of observing the actions of others, even if we are reading about them in the Bible. Everybody in Camden is broke. How can you say that? Because I've lived here my whole life. So? So? Anybody know about, uh, what the heck's her name? It's Harriet something. She was uh, a miser. She's like the most famous miser of all time. She's from New Bedford, Mass. 
upon her death, she was worth like $200 million. And there's account after account of her spending an hour looking for a two-cent postage stamp that fell under the seat in her carriage or something like that. She wore the same dress all day, every day, even the same undergarments until she had to throw them out. And she was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I think billions by today's, I want to say when they normalize it to today's standards, it was like four billion. Read about her on uh, Wikipedia. Yeah. I don't know if she was Portuguese, but she's from New Bedford. And you know everybody from New Bedford is Portuguese, right? They're all fishermen. They're all this tall and this wide. They have to shave three times a day. You know what I'm saying? They smell like cod liver oil or at least at the gym. They're all the same. New Bedford, New Bedford. But that's human prejudice. So keep it simple. That's why I gave you those quotes at the beginning from Cooper at the start of class, and I recommended that book by Gray as well. And just as a friendly reminder to you, my dear sheep, from the authority in this church, the one who God personally chose, from the foundation, or before the dawn of mankind even. Yes, I'm speaking about myself. Do yourselves a big favor and cling to this theology while you're at it. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for a purpose, for equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, I have a definite purpose in your life. Whether you like it or not is not the issue. Whether you agree with that theology or not is not the issue. But, but, check your flesh and your experiences at the door. But, but, no, I don't care. If you struggle with authority orientation, like some of you do, then just remember the following. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. And trust me, I know who you are. Just remember these passages of Scripture. Just remember theology. What I just read you in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's impossible, so says your flesh. That's impossible. Look at them. Yeah, look at me. So? So? What's your problem? Well, my experience says that you're a jackass. I know. I've said it myself. But what does that have to do with theology? No, seriously, what does that have to do with the theology that put this pulpit right here in front of you right now? Every single one of you as individuals. What does that have to do with theology? Nothing. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That's the kicker. 
People that struggle with authority orientation, what they don't realize is they're making their own lives miserable. They're making themselves miserable. Sometimes they bring me misery by biting, scratching, and whatever. But for the most part, they're the miserable ones. They're the ones who are kicking against theology. They're the ones who are denying theology proper. So it's really not even me. They're hurting. They're hurting themselves. And that's what Scripture says. If you don't believe it, read it again. Keep reading it. And if you're still struggling with submitting to my authority, then I submit some more Scripture for you. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4.8. 1 Thessalonians 4.8. This is what I know to be true. Any time that your flesh comes up and you know, takes a snap at me like a rabid dog, just know that this is what I know to be true. Why? Not through experience. My experience says I should murder half of you. <laughs> Seriously. But Scripture says, no, you can't do that. Because God doesn't want you murdering your congregation. That would be wrong. Okay. You know, I'm just kidding, right? But, I'm a little, I'm just kidding. First Thessalonians 4, 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So if you're rejecting my authority in your life, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting theology. Why? I don't know. And don't be sophomore. Don't be a sophomore that says, well, I can't submit to Pastor Ed because he's made doctrinal mistakes in the past. So? So? You see, this would be a perfect illustration of all that I've taught you up until this point this morning. If you say that, you, my friend, are a perfect example of what I've been teaching all morning. I can't submit to Pastor Ed because he's made mistakes in the past. He's imperfect. So I guess you can railroad theology because of your experience with a person. Hmm. The sophomores are scratching their heads right now. If you say something stupid like, I can't submit to Pastor Ed because he's admittedly made mistakes in the past, then you are a perfect example of the person who narrows clearly stated theology through personal experiences. You're, you're that person. Literally. You're that person right now. Because Scripture says, I'm here for a reason, and God put me here. Your experience with me doesn't matter. He put me here. And I'm here for a reason. To equip you for the work of service. For the building up of the body of Christ. Amen? Then what's your problem? Oh, arrogant ones. The theology says that I have been placed in your life for a purpose. Whether you fully understand why me is not the issue. That's not the issue. Why did you, you give me him? What, seriously, what do you mean? God's like, what are you talking about? I'll just, well, you, want me, you want me to give you somebody else who's imperfect as well? 
Oh, you want somebody else who's imperfect? The only one that was perfect was one. That was Jesus Christ. The only shepherd that has ever been perfect is Jesus Christ himself. So you either take theology at face value, or you try to mangle it with your personal experiences. And this is what the sophomoric, anti-authority orientation person does all day, every day, and they're also miserable because of it. So, I'll leave you with this. Calling out spades. If your excuse for not submitting to and obeying me, your shepherd, is that I'm imperfect? Well, consider yourself my final proof point this morning on this very topic of using human experience to narrow proper theology. Yeah, you, whoever's having that problem, whoever's being honest with themselves, says, I have a hard time submitting and obeying that person. Well, you are my perfect proof point to yourself of exactly what I've been teaching all morning and from Thursday even. You're using your personal experiences to narrow proper theology. Submit and obey. What would you like me to You want me to teach something different? You want me to teach you that I'm not here for a purpose? That spiritual gifts are a farce? Do you want me to teach you that? Do you want me to, you want me to teach you that you get to, like, pick and choose from a litany of all kinds of things and do like sort of a, a patchwork quilt of things that you like from the Bible and things you don't? In human experience, what would you like me to tell you? You want me to lie to you? But you're imperfect. I know. I'll be the first one to tell you. After that, my family's like right on top of me. They're like, they see hands coming out from behind my head. It's true. It's true. Right? So, what's that going to do with theology? Honestly. Seriously. What's that going to do with theology? I mean, what a, how, do you, how do you reconcile, and I'm just going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. How do you reconcile someone who says that if you murder someone, it's impossible to get to heaven? That theology exists out there. It's false. Okay, so then what do we do with Paul? Or David? Or Moses? I mean, what do we do with these guys that are actually... Pillars of faith. What do we do? Well, we can't listen to anything they said. Well, since that's Paul, we might as well rip out half the New Testament. Moses, rip out that. David, rip out Samuel. I mean, stop ripping out. What are we left with? If we can only follow the commands of God when the people who are chosen as instruments of righteousness to fulfill those commands, if we have to rip all those pages out that use imperfect people, the only thing that's ever going to be left are the red letters. Well, then what? You see how it goes? The flip side, of course, is, okay. New creature says, absolutely, submit and obey. That's my authority? Cool. Makes my life a lot easier. Flash is like, no! Well, again... If your excuse for not submitting to and obeying me, your shepherd, is that I'm imperfect, well, consider yourself my final proof point this morning on the very topic of using human experience to narrow proper theology. And let me just say this before I fire up the video. 
If that's you, then I ask you to consider the final phrase in Hebrews 13, 17, which states, for this would be unprofitable for you. This would be unprofitable for you. With that said, let's, um, before I show the video even, uh, ushers, uh, get the elements and uh, play a little music. We'll get ready for communion service. Tom's moving slower than me. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. 
Guys, want to get the lights, please? Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for allotting this time to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. We thank you for giving us the strength to resist the devil, even though he desires to split us apart. For even Jesus stated, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. We pray, Father, that the unity in this church remains stronger than ever as the temperature and the frequency of attacks seems ever increasing. Father, we pray for the weak in the congregation that they stick with it. And we pray for the strong that they remain steadfast, patient, and encouraging to the weak. Together, may we walk shoulder to shoulder, bringing glory to you, Father, 
as we take on the great commission in the church to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.